Braden Ellum, you've written a rich and engaging book about the history of trade unionism in the Pilbara iron ore industry. It's a complex and important history filled with many twists and turns. It's also very much a history which has long since been clouded by myth. One such, one such myth is the idea that it was men like Lang Hancock who first discovered iron ore and then through their business acumen and entrepreneurial genius developed the industry off their own backs. You make it clear in the opening chapters that, in fact, it was state support and intervention as well as investment from major corporations which got the industry off the ground from the mid-1960s onwards. That's right. Lots of industries and places have a frontier myth and the Pilbara and the Pilbara's iron ore industry in particular is no exception. But as you say, the really important story is how all these individuals and forces came together. And and that is a story about something that perhaps might seem a little bit unfashionable to some people. It is a story about governments and the states. Perhaps today some people don't realise that uh, there was actually an embargo on the export of iron ore. Uh, by the Commonwealth Government and so of course it didn't matter who discovered what or how much was in the ground Uh, that embargo had to be lifted uh, and government action therefore lay at the heart of the making of what's now this huge export industry. Almost from the very inception of the iron ore industry in the late 1960s the workers began developing a very strong and militant form of trade unionism. One industrial relations commissioner in an unwittingly poetic phrase called it the quote irresponsible iron ore ethos. In another part of your book it's referred to as the Pilbara Way. Very complex question I know but give us a brief summary of what the factors were that gave rise to such a legendary chapter in the history of Australian trade unionism. It's a great a combination of, of general factors and, and actually international factors as well as things specific to the Pilbara. So if we wind back to the 1960s when, uh, when the industry began, um, by far the majority of the workforce and almost everyone had their wages and conditions determined by union conditions one way or the other. Mining across the country was highly unionised, so they're the national things if you like plus uh, a big chunk of the workforce, skilled workers in particular, and construction workers had come from uh, Britain where they'd been members of unions and typically pretty militant ones as well. And then there's the local factors, which to me are the critical ones in really activating this and tipping it all over. The mining companies were really keen, uh, as the construction companies had been, to get the job done quickly, to get the dirt onto ships and... uh, uh, they were also faced with a supply of uh, a problem of a shortage of supply of labour. Uh, there wasn't much labour in the Pilbara that they wanted. They weren't keen on indigenous labour, which is another story in itself. So, a uh, combination of those big factors plus supply and demand simply meant that the workforce in that at that period of time was in a very strong position to to ramp up their their demands. Although struggles for better wages were, of course, a feature of the many strikes and industrial disputes that took place in the Pilbara, there was also a consistent and arguably far more important effort by workers to gain control over their work. This meant everything from struggles over rostering to daily work practices to preferential hiring of union members, and it even extended to housing and other services in the towns in which the workers lived. Give our listeners a a sense of the breadth of scope, if you like, in terms of the struggles that workers engage in. It wasn't just uh, simply about uh, wages, was it? No, it really wasn't, Alex, and that's an incredibly important question. And and in a way, it's the most interesting 
part of the story to me and something that I think has been either forgotten or, or, or written out. Um, there was a there, there was a pretty widespread move to what was called either economic democracy or workers' control, even in some parts of Australia at that time. But I don't think anywhere near as strongly as it was in the Pilbara, where again, because of the strength of the unions in the workplace, they were able to have a much bigger say than other workers in rosters and shift arrangements, and sometimes even who their supervisors might be. But as you rightly say, even that wasn't the end of it um, because the uh, the towns were towns that were really all about iron ore uh, and iron ore families it, it really meant that the unions or the workforce more generally exercised a lot of control over town life and and social life and uh, the important thing is that although, and we mustn't forget this, although there was, as there is today, really high labour turnover in the in the industry, there also was a core of people with their families who stayed in the Pilbara towns for quite a long time. And, it, and the attitudes and the orientations of those longer-term workers were the ones that really defined the place and sort of showed other workers who went in and out how to behave and what was, as you said a moment ago, what was the, the Pilbara way. And the Pilbara Way was about uh, this, in some people's minds at any rate, this pretty ambitious idea uh, about having a big say in how towns were run and what social life was like as well as what was going on in, in the workplace. Now, I mentioned there's a huge amount of mythology that has developed around the history of the Pilbara, and one such myth is the uh, really muckraking that was pursued by the conservative media, as well as uh, employer associations, that all these workers were industrial terrorists, they were vandals, they were greedy, and that they engaged in disputes over the most for the most petty of reasons. And one such kind of legend that's built up around that is the idea that workers went on strike over a particular flavour of, of ice cream. Tell that story briefly and I guess what it says about the myths that have developed around why workers did go on strike yeah um yeah this is this is the favorite story but they went on strike because there weren't enough flavors of ice cream uh and it's one of those stories that's become bigger and bigger in the telling and then you try to track down when this particular dispute was supposed to happen and it's very difficult to find the time or the place when it when it did happen uh, on the other hand, um, there were lots of disputes about the facilities uh, and there were lots of disputes because especially when the industry began, um, the conditions, the amenities and the food itself were, were pretty poor and people forget about that. They became much improved uh, after a lot of protest about it. I think it's the only place I know of in Australia, maybe in the world, where there actually was uh, an industrial dispute about the provision of eskies. Um, and so I guess today everybody sits back and has a bit of a laugh about these crazy buggers who would go into a strike about such a thing. But if you think about it for a moment, in the temperatures that people know about up in the Pilbara, it's a pretty basic thing, really. And of course, uh, today... The, those sort of conditions would be regarded as just the way that it should be. So, yeah, uh, I, but I think the the wider point that you're hinting at is incredibly important, Alex, and that is that um, these thing, these disputes, and to be honest, some of them were a try-on from the workers and they knew it, but the way that these disputes were painted by the media and painted by the companies are incredibly important in redefining 
the uh, redefining the nature of the Pilbara. If I could just follow on from that with one particular illustration, which I love as a historian, and I love as someone who's always trying to tell students that history really matters. A few years ago, when there was an attempt to reunionise part of Rio Tinto's operations, uh, there's a fantastic feature about this in one of the mining magazines, you know, one of the industry, one of the employer magazines. And and to get their point home, uh, they had a they had a photograph of uh, ice cream containers, and it said unions back in the Pilbara or something like that. So you know, very <laughs> clever use of history to make a point about the present. And uh, to me, that was one reason to write this book was to was to try to look at the history from the perspectives of the workforce themselves. Inevitably, this will be a very truncated history because I want to jump ahead now to the dramatic decline of trade union power in the Pilbara, the legacy of which is very much still felt today, and we'll get onto that legacy in a moment. But a series of key disputes took place in the 1980s and 90s, which dealt severe blows to the Pilbara labour movement. Tell our listeners briefly about the Robe River dispute and why its outcome had such a lasting impact. Yeah, so this is a tick over 30 years ago, and this was the turning point, and not just for the Pilbara. So uh, Robe River had been one of those companies whose strategies were, strategy was pretty much peace at any price with the workforce, uh, but they came under increasing cost pressure and a new ownership from outside of the Pilbara came in. Interestingly enough, a lot of people talked about it as an Americanisation of industrial relations, but it was actually when an Australian management team took over this US-based company that things started to change, and this was a guy who whose name will be familiar to many people of a certain age in Western Australia, a guy called Charles Copeman, and he brought in some very, very tough minded anti-union managers to um, to change everything around and uh, there was a flurry of emails on the day that they took over the uh, effective running of the company and one of them, sorry it wasn't emails in those days, uh, letters and memos and, uh, and one of the memos simply said management will manage and it doesn't sound like much but in the Pilbara at the time that was an absolutely fundamental transition of course so they were really trying to put their union, the unions back in their box and eventually uh, get rid of them. So they did all sorts of things that were literally unthinkable until that stage. The, the, uh, the Western Australian Industrial Commission was investigating a lot of these work practices on the sites and they came up with a decision about this and some other matters that the company didn't like. So the company just simply locked the workforce out. If you like, the managers went on strike. So this is completely unthinkable in the history of the Pilbara. Turned everything upside down, showed the unions that this new company was really serious and they went on to um, isolate the union leaders. They went on to offer people who they knew were the more militant leaders, uh, offer them redundancies to get rid of them. And there were some strikes and disputes over the summer of 1986-87. And after that, the attention faded. But what's really important about this is the company leadership was absolutely dedicated to changing the nature of their operation and for five or six years after that they pursued unions, they pursued the militants, they were in and out of courts, they were in and out of the commission all through that time and then when the state laws were changed in 93 in the West 
to allow individual contracts, that was the final nail in the coffin. So, uh, yeah, it was a really long campaign and it was a campaign that remade Robe River and the other companies had a look at it and, and it started to remake the Pilbara and, in my view, Australia. Another key dispute which took place in this period was at Hammersley Iron. From 1992, CRA later become Rio Tinto began implementing a plan to introduce, as you've just mentioned, individual workplace agreements, uh, which were designed fundamentally to undermine the rights and conditions won by workers through collective struggle over the course of many years. How and why did CRA succeed in this effort? Yeah, well, one of the reasons that they succeeded... Uh, goes back to what we were just talking about. One of the reasons they succeeded was that Robe River had shown that it was possible and I think that a lot of the union members were feeling a little defensive after that and thought, oh gee, you know, things that we thought were unthinkable could happen. And uh, this was a case where the company, CRA, as you say, was all too happy to have a dispute. And it was another unthinkable thing, like the lockout at Roe River, what happened this time was the workforce went on strike because um, a one particular worker hadn't joined the union that he should have joined and the company refused to make him do so. Now again today this seems like otherworldly stuff, but back then in the Pilbara at that time the idea of a non-union worker and the company going along with it was completely antagonistic to everything that uh, had shaped industrial relations to that point. And so the workforce went out on strike and what they saw as a matter of principle about this matter, the company was only too willing to have a dispute because the new laws were coming in, because the company had been preparing for some years with a new management structure, with the, running out, the laying out of individual contracts, they were ready for this and they, they really wanted this dispute. Why did the unions fall over, in this case, much more quickly than at Robe River? Well, because the laws had already changed, the leadership of the unions and some individuals were threatened with really big fines, they were really on the back foot, they were losing confidence and after a few months when these contracts came in, almost all the workforce signed up straight away and uh, that was the end of the unionised workforce across that site for many years well to this day. The Great Pilbara Experiment in Worker Participation and Industrial Democracy, that was a phrase used in a press release by the Confederation of Western Australian Industry in August 1986. It was meant in a disparaging way, you nevertheless describe it as an accurate summary of what was at stake in the Robe River dispute and indeed in the later Hamsley Iron dispute of the early 1990s. Explain to our listeners the long-term consequences of these union defeats. Is it too much of a stretch to argue that there is a direct line of causality between those defeats and the work regime we see now in the Pilbara, one defined by brutal 12-hour shifts and the toxic, destructive culture known as fly-in, fly-out? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt about it. And uh, the the reason is to to emphasise the importance of very old-fashioned industrial relations issues. It's about who controls the the workplace, and it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that um, fly and fly out wouldn't happen. It's certainly not in the form that it does, and the twelve hour shifts and the rosters wouldn't be in the form that they are if the unions had survived. Once once the companies and BHP did the same thing after 1999. Once the companies had taken care of the unions. Um, they were able to exercise control over the workforce in a way undreamt of before that. And 
we need to be really careful in how we understand this. This isn't like other industries where individual contracts were about cost-cutting and about reducing wages. The wages are not the issue in a, in a highly capitalised industry like this where it's all about continuous production of iron ore. So um, they're willing to keep paying the high wages. What they wanted was absolute control of the workplace, rosters, shifts, as you said, fly and fly out, reducing also the power of workers in the community by having a workforce that's fragmented across the whole of Australia, not locked up in small, in small mining towns. So, yep, there's a, there is absolutely a straight line from those disputes between 86 and 99 to the sort of uh, work practices and workforce that we have today where the companies say, oh, well, fly and fly out's just really a choice and it's what workers want. Well, of course, they don't have a choice because all the new operations are fly and fly out only.